to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting System. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, we have an exclusive conversation with uh, Glenn Cook. Uh, I cannot recall another time when I saw Glenn Cook speak publicly about his company. And this is uh, an amazing success story. It, it may be if not the biggest, one of the biggest success stories in Atlantic Canada, and it's generally unknown uh, by the public. Uh, the success of uh, Cook over the 30 years of its existence, starting from Blacks Harbor, <laughs> New Brunswick, to becoming basically the largest seafood company, privately owned that is, uh, in the world, uh, is an amazing journey. Look, it's a $4 billion company, he tells us. $4 billion yeah. in sales. So that's, you know, you've got, you've got McCain's and then you've got Cook. Uh, so, um, so, and of course, uh, uh, I think J.D. Irving must be in that range in terms of revenue. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible success story. A success story built on, uh, on 20 years of acquisitions, small local acquisitions, and then now global acquisitions, the most recent one. Uh, as you talked about in the in the conversation with 1.5 billion, a firm in Australia. So, just exciting to see a New Brunswick-based firm or Atlantic Canada-based firm growing growing a global business from from right here uh, in our neck of the woods. If you know, we we sometimes kick ourselves and say we're kind of a backwater. So it's good to see that you can build really great businesses from little old Atlantic Canada. Yeah. So Cook is in 14 countries and, you know, he didn't say it, but I think we can infer that the most difficult country to work in is Canada uh, because of the regulatory process here, which is convoluted, multi-level government and very slow. And, uh, and it's probably one of the reasons why the aquaculture industry really hasn't grown a whole lot in Atlantic Canada despite the fact that we have, you know, a tremendous uh, asset of, of coastline uh, that is, uh, you know, prime for uh, growing uh, fish. And uh, it, I think it, you know, you can safely say that they saw better opportunity elsewhere. Uh, and they've certainly uh, done that. And by the way, this is a company that has 13,000 employees, uh, 2,500 of which are in Atlantic Canada, and, and several hundred head office jobs because they have operations worldwide. Uh, that's the importance of it. And the other thing that I was stunned by, you know, they have 800 vessels in their fleets and 30 processing plants. I mean, like the scale of this is really uh, bigger than I imagined. And, and it shows, you know, how successful they've been as a company. That's right. I just want to come back to your point about Canada and natural resource development. We're supposed to be a natural resources powerhouse, but we've been curtailing mining. We've been curtailing oil and gas. Now, you know, the aquaculture sector hasn't grown in terms of its national GDP contribution in over a decade. So I don't know this 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 sort of vision of Canada as a natural resources powerhouse. I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe. Uh, but there's always going to be people standing up saying we don't like it, and there's going to be all, 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 always a political uh, uh, worry that you, you know I'm going to offend some political constituency if I allow more fish farming or I allow more mining or I allow more oil and gas or I allow whatever. So this is a problem that Canada has. I mean, he talked about Norway 
Don, in several occasions. Norway has been pumping the oil and gas. They've been leading the world in fish farming. He tells us every year, every single year, they, they roll out new leases for aquaculture around the coast of Norway, which is just a fraction of the coast we have here in Atlantic Canada. So I think this is a, it's a good example of, of, you know, what do we want to do with our natural resources? We want to be an ocean supercluster. And everybody gets excited if that means little technologies and little sort of whatever. But here we have a, we could be feeding the world from Atlantic Canada. Uh, and, and we're seeing no growth in the GDP from uh, aquaculture. So I'll get off the soapbox and we can go back to talking. No, about I'm, I'm going to jump on it because like, uh, you know, the regulatory uh, issue is not the, not the first time we've heard this. You know, uh, we, saw, we saw a sustainable marine, uh, a company that was trying to harness the uh, tides of the Bay of Funday and turn it into energy go down because of the slowness of the regulatory process. You know, we've seen a big company like Cook, who could easily double or triple uh, what they're doing in this region, look away, basically. I think that that's what you can you can gather from this to better markets to grow their business. You know, uh, the province of New Brun- uh, Nova Scotia just announced two offshore wind sites, and already they they delayed the process because of resistance of those uh, windmills. Uh, we had uh, Peter Nicholson on, who talked about Atlantic Canada being an energy superpower, uh, delivering green power to the rest of the country. You know, that can't, that can't happen without better regulations. And, and by the way, in a region like Atlantic Canada, like I've been an advocate for a common set of regulations. Why do we have to have different regulations for such a small region? Could we not cooperate and get those regulations, you know, uh, done together so they're standardized? We could do that pretty easily. So I'm challenging the political leaders to stand up and, and, and make it streamline the process for regulation and so that we can get stuff done in this region. We could start feeding the world. We could start providing green energy to the rest of the country. You know, all what's preventing it? <laughs> Don, you're on a roll, my friend. Well, you know, <laughs> like, well, it, it's frustrating sometimes to live in this region. We can't have a big picture. And what Peter Nicholson talked about, and I just want to emphasize this because I think it's really, really important, is is that you have to have a big vision of what's possible. Plus, you have to have audacity to be able to go for that vision. We need more of that in this region. And, you know, we have people willing to do it. People like Glenn Cook, who can prove that he can operate anywhere in the world and do it responsibly, by the way. You know, he he talked about having geneticists uh, working for him and PhD level uh, researchers to make sure that his business is scientific scientifically based uh, run you know he's doing everything he, the right way and he deserves to have uh, some recognition for that and so you know we're race, wasting those resources because they're they're turning their attention elsewhere yeah he does seem to be frustrated about that and i think with good reason i mean no type of of protein acquisition to feed the world it comes without any implications whether that's the raising of cattle uh, or fishing of wild fa- fish stocks or whatever. And I think on balance, you know, the, the evidence shows that, that well-managed uh, fish farming has about the lowest, you know, environmental footprint of any of it. You know, if you think about the uh, chicken and, and, and pork and other, other, other uh, meat protein. So I think he's a bit frustrated by that. It comes across in this interview. But overall, it's a very positive interview and a very exciting company that has... Uh, uh, significant growth potential and growth ambition, but also that focuses on 
you know, contributing and being good corporate citizen at home in these small rural communities. So with that rather long and, uh, and a little bit of rant thrown in introduction by both of us, here's our really interesting conversation with Glenn Cook, the CEO of Cook Agriculture. Our guest today on this episode of the Insights Podcast is Glenn Cook, the CEO of Cook Agriculture. Glenn, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Glenn, uh, your, your entrepreneurial story is one of the most impressive in recent memory in our region. We're really excited to have you on. We'd like to start our discussion with uh, maybe you giving our listeners a little bit of your personal background, where you were born and raised, and then ultimately um, came to the point of starting and, and, uh, and running this uh, company, Cook Aquaculture. So where, where did everything start? Well, I, I was born in uh, Blacks Harbor and grew up in Charlotte County, St. George area. And, um, you know, my, my summer jobs has always worked around fish and fish plants. And my family has a, a long history of being involved in the fishery in one way or the other for uh, many, many generations. So, uh, you know, out of, out of high school, I had the, the brilliant idea that I wasn't going to go to university. I was going to go and, uh, start a business and buying and selling and seafood and, uh, quickly, quickly, um, uh, through that, uh, failed and, and lost my shirt and, and, um, realized at that point I didn't never wanted to fail again. And, uh, so we, uh, get into the, the salmon farming business, my father and brother, we got started with two wooden cages and 5,000 fish. And as we say, the, the, the rest is history as we basically, uh, as we made money, we, reinvested it back in and kept building the business. So Cook Aquaculture is a vertically integrated family of seafood companies now with its roots in Blacks Harbor, starting in, I think, we around 1985. Can you provide our listeners with some understanding of the size and scope of the company now in terms of um, the various companies, where they're located, the number of people you employ, just a high-level sketch? We're going to talk specifically about some of your activities as we go forward, but maybe just a, a high-level sketch of the company. We've grown to be in 14 countries around the world, and the company is, uh, we, we do farm fish, we do farm salmon, farm sea bass, sea bream, farm shrimp, uh, farm bear mundi. Uh, we also have a very large wild side, wild fishery side, and uh, so from a farm perspective, we're probably farming 175,000 metric tons a year. The wild side, uh, uh, we have a big interest in uh, the fish meal, fish oil. Um, we have our fishing operations in Argentina and Uruguay and, and other places in the world. And, and we'll do about 275,000 metric tons of wild fish a year. And, you know, we have over close to 13,000 employees worldwide and uh, pushing 4 billion in in sales. That's Glenn, that's really impressive. <laughs> you know, not many people know, you know, how big you've become over the years. Uh, you know, uh, uh, for our listeners, again, what does it mean to be an integrated fish farming uh, company? What are the what are the pieces? Well, for, from an integration in fish farming, you know, we in some of the regions around the world, we have, you know, we have our own feed plants. We obviously have our own hatcheries where we actually, you know, hatch or our juvenile fish or shrimp or 
and you know we'll put those into our seawater pens and uh, you know we have our, our own harvest uh, vessels we have our own processing facilities we have our own added value facilities we have our own trucking facilities some of our own packaging facilities and um, so and we also have a lot of seafood uh, distribution assets where we actually deliver directly to you know major uh, retailers or seafood chains or or even smaller restaurants. Yeah, so you mentioned that you had, uh, your, you know, obviously harvesting vessels and, and plants to process uh, your product. Again, just to give us an idea, how many vessels would you have and plants would you have uh, in, the, in the company currently? All sizes, including aquaculture vessels and wild fishing vessels, we'd have close to 800. And we'd have over 30 processing facilities on a global basis. <clears throat> And some of our vessels that, you know, that uh, fish that are frozen at sea would have processing vessels uh, right aboard them as well, which are, would be on top of the, the 30 land-based plants. That's a big fleet. <laughs> That's a very big fleet to take care of, isn't it? Yeah, very, very much it is, wow. yeah. It reminds me of the airlines. The largest owner of airplanes in the world is Federal Express. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, uh, um, um, the parallel there. Um, can you tell us how many of your employees are based in Atlantic Canada of that global headcount of 13,000? I believe it's around 2,500 are in Atlantic Canada. And, uh, you know, of that, we have about uh, 250 in our head office here in St. John. Um you know, part of the, as we build and expand around the world, we're, you know, we try to generate head office jobs back here in Atlantic Canada. And so we have, you know, head office jobs here as well as some in Mason, Charlotte County as well. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your fish farms. You, uh, most of them, I believe, are ocean-based, but do you have land-based fish farms as well? All our juvenile production in our farming operations started out land-based. So we'd have broodstock on land-based, and then we'd, we'd uh, you know, we'd, in the Atlantic salmon, they'd start out in the freshwater land-based. Most of those today are uh, a recirculation, very high-tech land-based facilities. And, um, and then we'd move the fish to seawater where they're then grown f uh, through to market size. Um, you know, there's been questions in the past, land-based versus uh, um, uh, sea-based. Part of it comes down to sustainability, and, and there's a whole bunch of pieces of sustainability. Obviously, you have environmental sustainability, and you also have financial sustainability. And today, nowhere in the world is there a profitable, large-scale uh, land-based salmon farm. And our industry, you know, globally today, is about 60 years old in seawater. So basically for 60 years around the world, there's been uh, fish grown in the sea. And uh, I have to say, and I've said this many times, you know, how many years has to pass by until you're a legitimate industry? You know, how many years do you have to grow chicken in a chicken barn or, or uh, you know, uh, pork in a hog barn before um, you become a, an industry that's recognized? and you know, we've done, our industry's based on a lot of science, and, and not that I'm opposed to land-based, but land-based is not at the point where it's profitable. It certainly uh, you produces a lot more carbon footprint than uh, uh, seawater farming, 
And um, so, you know, I, I think there's room for both because the industry globally is growing and consumption of salmon is growing so fast that um, we probably do need other alternate uh, ways to grow fish because, uh, you know, salmon's becoming, and sea bass and sea bream, other species are becoming such a popular uh, uh, part of the people's diet that, that we need to keep up with that healthy production somewhere. You know, in doing research for this podcast, Glenn, I found out that uh, the world produces 90 million tons of fish annually. That's a <laughs> that's Sweet. a big number. Yeah. You're, you're a big company. You just told us that uh, you do about 450 um, uh, metric tons uh, of uh, fish production. So although you're big, you're, you're a small piece of a big a big market. But uh, uh, that, those numbers are mind boggling. Uh, Tell me how many fish that translates into. Can you give, give me an idea how many fish that actually? Uh, you know, from our perspective, we probably, uh, in the salmon world, we're probably stocking um, um, probably 35 million to 40 million fish a year in our salmon farming operations. Sea bass, sea bream, probably close to 60 million fish. And, you know, obviously then you get in the shrimp and everything, you're in the practically billions. So. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, the wild catch, again, is, is big volume. And I have to say is, is, you know, the fisheries that we are involved in around the world are MSC certified. So, you know, they're a third party. You know, we're big in that anything we do has to be sustainable, whether it's farming or fishing, and that we're only involved in very sustainable wild fisheries. But, Glenn, Glenn if I could yeah. jump in, you, you must be one of the larger players in farmed salmon around the world, though. You know, we're, we're number five, believe it or not. There's four larger companies, and those four larger companies, are, um, three of them are based in Norway and are, are public. All the four ones bigger than us are public. We're the largest privately held salmon farming company and seafood company in the world, And uh, but our other competitors are... are uh, and Norway is the biggest, largest global uh, player in farm salmon in the world, followed by Chile. Even though Canada has a much bigger coastline and much more capability, uh, the regulatory framework in Canada has never allowed the industry to grow to the, to the level of uh, places like uh, Norway, Chile, even Scotland. Hmm. Uh, in uh, 2018, uh, Cook Agriculture was named by the Canadian Chamber of Commerce as the Private Business Growth Award winner for the entire country. The company is one of Atlantic Canada's top employers and one of Canada's best managed companies for, I think you just got that again, didn't you? 18 did. years in a row. Yeah. You know, that's quite a, that's quite a record. Uh, where would Cook rank in Canada? Uh, I guess, and maybe in, in the world in terms of size as a seafood company. I don't know if you can tell us that, but it would be interesting to know where you rank currently. I mean, you gave us some numbers on species, but overall. We, we would be the largest seafood company in in uh, in Canada. And again, we'd be the largest global privately held company in the world. There's some bigger Companies in us, from, particularly from Japan, that are kind of conglomerates that's been around for a long time. They're public companies. Um, but certainly from a, a North American perspective, um, we are, we're the largest. Uh, obviously, when you go from, you know, 
just getting started to 13,000 employees. You didn't do it by yourself, obviously. What, what, what would you like to say about the people uh, that work for Cook? What, what makes you most proud? I mean, I think what pro- makes me proud is our team. We have an incredible team. You know, we've got some people that are, uh, you know, very long-term employees that have been there from the very early years. And uh, that, that's who we owe the growth to. Those That team alongside me is... Uh, has built this company, and, and you know, as we build, and, and whether it's you know operations in Spain or Scotland or now in Australia, you know that we have incredible team members, and they get aboard with the concept and the the, the, the same uh, mentality that you know that we have, and uh, and um, they really have helped build it. And uh, it's uh, I'm very proud of our team. I'm very proud of uh, our culture and uh, and the people that's helped build this. I wanted to come back to this question of helping our listeners understand the fish farming in general around the world. We know that without fish farming, we would never be able to meet the demand for fish protein uh, around the country. So fish farming has played an incredible role. Um, Can you give us a sense of which countries do the most fish farming in general? I understand a lot of the shellfish uh, aquaculture is in Asia. Is, is most of the fin fish, as you indicated, in sort of uh, Chile and Canada and Scotland and Norway. So what where what countries do the most fish farming? Well, I think China or in Asia certainly would grow the most different species fish, and some of those are fish in seawater, obviously not Atlantic or Atlantic salmon or that type of thing. Um, and, you know, like from a shrimp production, you've got very large shrimp production in Asia, very large shrimp, uh, this is farm production, in places like Ecuador and and uh, Central America, um, certainly on the salmon front, uh, Norway is the leader, and followed by Chile and, and followed by Scotland, and I think Canada would be probably number four now. Although they're getting certainly pushed by places like Australia to uh, pushing uh, up. So, you know, we're not seeing a significant growth in production in Canada and certainly on the west coast of Canada, we're seeing a decrease in production because some of the the political, social political um, things that are going on there. So, um, but huge potential and, um, but, you know, if, if you look at the economies of Norway and Chile, uh, you know, I, I think in Norway it's oil and then it's salmon and and then in Chile, it's copper, and then it's salmon. So the, those are very large drivers in those economies. So I wanted to ask you how you make the decision on what species to, is it just opportunistic? So for example, in, in our region, we're seeing a lot of oysters, mussels, other, other types of shellfish being farmed. Is that areas that you're looking at or you, you've gone into? We haven't gone into it in any large extent. We'll, we handle some of those products through some of our distribution, that type of thing. But, you know, like uh, for us, is we, you know, it's important to get scale. Um, so, you know, if species have scales, there's of interest. And, you know, what we're trying to do is basically serve our end customers the whole basket of products. And um, so that's so you know we, we continue to look and we continue to look to build on what our species we have now i think we have 25 kind of core species that we do globally and between aquaculture and and wild fishery and um 
certainly is, is not the number of species, but it's, you know, obviously what the consumer wants. That's what we're kind of working with and it fits our overall structure. You know, like recently in um, Australia, you know, we bought into Australia in November last year, which was a very large operation that uh, we do about $800 million in sales in Australia currently. And they farm <clears throat> salmon and, and, and they farmed uh, prawns. And then we've seen an opportunity to would, would in, and uh, buy a Bear Monday farm, you know, because again, it was going into the retailers, it fit the same. So those type of things fit well with how we see and grow our business. And uh, it's just the add-ons sometimes. So we really want to talk to you a little bit about your acquisition strategy. We don't see a lot of companies in this region that grow that way through acquisition. Um, we're not seeing it in the IT sector. We're not seeing it in, in some of our other manufacturing sectors. But certainly you have really grown a global business through acquisition. So we wanted to talk to you about that. As, from our research, we understand you've had at least 14 major acquisitions since 2016, uh, valued at over $2.5 billion. There's been a couple just in the last couple of years, and you've already talked about your uh Australian acquisition recently. Um, can you tell us what the challenges are associated with integrating and managing companies that are from diverse places in the world with diverse politics, with diverse environmental issues, diverse corporate cultures? How has that been in terms of challenges um, uh, that you've faced? I think the big challenge that we always, the one of the big issues we always look at now and we this is learning from experience is to make sure when we start into into a major acquisition that we're buying something that has a similar culture uh, one of the things the hardest things we see in 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 acquisitions is if you buy something in the wrong culture is in the operation um, we find it very hard to change culture very fast and culture means a lot when it comes to driving synergies making money, becoming part of the team. So culturally fitting companies is, is very important for us. And, and you know, we have a lot of work, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, in, in Europe or, or South America with uh, teams that culturally fit, even though there's different languages, even they come from different cultures, they, they still fit. And so we put a lot of effort in to make sure of that. I, certainly, uh, you know, we're involved in regions that, um, um, are not necessarily, you know, we farm shrimp in, in Honduras, Nicaragua, which are, you know, tougher countries to, sometimes to to uh, get around in as far as trying to figure out the business. But, but you know, like we, uh, we certainly, um, we certainly see the opportunities and we want to seize opportunities when we, when we see them. And, and uh, to grow our business, it's, um, there's certain countries in the world that are more prone to fisheries and uh, wild fisheries and for aquaculture. And you look at Canada, there's not a lot of opportunities to grow in the aquaculture space in Canada. That's a shame because we have probably the largest coastline in the world. But And uh, the same thing with our fisheries because the way the fisheries works in Canada, you have the, the separation between inshore fleet and offshore fleet. Our interest would be more in the offshore fleet, which is tied up in 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 a few hands today so we that pushes us to look more on the world's scene for those opportunities and um, you know certainly if we look when we we bought into uh, australia and we had our eyes on australia for a few years 
you know, Australia is, you know, is somewhat similar to Canada, you know, their legal system and uh, uh, their culture. And, um, you know, it was an easy fit for us to, uh, to do that. And, you know, they have a, today, like Australia, our, our company there to sell has the, uh, the, the uh, largest protein brand in the country. So it's the most known. It's uh, it's very strong. So we look we look at the position in the marketplace and, and that type as well on the acquisition. Side. Can I just ask you a quick follow-up that one of the reasons why these companies go public is is to raise capital. You don't seem to have any challenge raising capital. Has it, has it been hard or easy to raise capital from Little Blacks Harbor, New Brunswick to make these massive global acquisitions? <laughs> It's uh, it's always hard at first because you know you've got to prove yourself and prove you know with your bankers and whatever. But partly is is that you know the Cook family, you know we don't take any large dividends or anything. We reinvest, so you know we've reinvested uh, basically every cent we we've made to build this thing, and and so that keeps your equity box climbing and and. Uh, and certainly working, we have a, a good set of global bankers that we work with that keep helping us grow. And, uh, you know, that, there's certain banks in the world that you work with that know aquaculture and there's certain banks that know fisheries. And, you know, combining those two is uh, we've got some good global partners. Uh, late last year, you announced the acquisition of the Tassel Group which is Australia's largest vertically integrated seafood producer in a deal worth a reported 1.5 billion. Is that Australian dollars or Canadian dollars? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's close to Canadian dollars. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, you know, that, that's obviously the biggest, uh, but I wanted to ask you, how difficult is it to do the necessary due diligence needed to make these kinds of acquisitions, especially with, you know, we're talking about a country on the other side of the world. You know, we have our internal DD team, but we also use outside external with, you know, like certain uh, law firms around the world, certain accounting firms. Um, and and uh, so, you know, we, we're kind of trained what to do now on a due diligence. We have strong due diligence lists. We get people on the ground and uh, we do a lot of work and, uh, you know, and um, you hope you're perfect on your due diligence. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you are. But uh, you know, one thing about buying public companies, they're 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 a little more easier to do your due diligence because all their information is readily available. Yeah, Glenn, I wanted to mention that my brother Jeff was uh, was to Australia with you for the insurance side. He's with Marsh uh, Marsh Canada. Okay. So uh, so I. Our family had a role in that. I just <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize you were Jeff's brothers. Oh, I see. Yeah, <laughs> small world, right? Very small world. Yeah. Uh, in 2022, you made a major partnership uh, investment in Ganong, uh, Canada's oldest candy and chocolate uh, company. This seems a little outside your strategy. <laughs> Can you tell us why you decided to make this purchase? It's 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 outside our strategy as far as the goal, you know the seafood world, but it was inside our strategy of making sure you know our jobs uh, in charlotte county and, and new brunswick are, are safe and secure you know uh, ganong's is a very uh, um long-standing family in new brunswick that's you know has a long history in the chocolate business and uh, we come alongside the ganong family to uh, 
make sure we preserve those jobs long term. And we're excited because you know we we want to help them grow it. We uh, we believe we can uh, double and triple that operation and jobs in uh, in Charlotte County long term. And uh, uh, so it's 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 out of our core, but it's where our heart is, which is uh, is Atlanta, Canada, and New Brunswick, Charlotte County. We wanted to ask you go a little bit deeper on that question because most of your farms and plants are located in these smaller communities and you do take pride in your rural roots and and uh, we really appreciate that but I guess the question is there's growing challenges in rural New Brunswick and in rural areas and trying to find workforce and some of the seasonal employment challenges so can you give our listeners a sense of what the major challenges are these days that associated with being a mainly rural-based company? I think there's obviously employees and get the, the right number. We always have openings. We're always working with the, the immigration programs. But the other big challenge is is, is housing in rural areas. And, um, you know, I've, I see the federal government's finally stepping up to look at the help in that, that regard. But, you know, if we're going to get – I don't want part-time seasonal immigration. I want long-term – people that are going to stay and be in these communities and grow in these communities. And we've already done that in the past. You know, we were one of the first companies in Charlotte County and probably New Brunswick that started bringing immigrants in. And, you know, I, I have to say there's a strong Filipino uh, community within uh, Charlotte County and St. John. There's, you know, a strong Romanian community. And now we're seeing uh, very strong Ukrainians uh, developing in a very strong. So these people are putting down roots. They're not moving to Toronto. And everybody says, well, after two years, I'll move to Toronto. You know, when you have a core group and they have a community and they're, they're, they're part of that social network within those communities now, uh, we're, we're quite excited where that's gone, where that's, it. but, but I, I would say now it's housing. We've got to figure we got to step up to figure out how we're going to make sure we're going to house these, these people long-term. Could I just follow up on the immigration side for a second? Because we're hearing this more and more in our conversations that uh, companies are actively recruiting immigrants into their workforces. And uh, we've heard some really interesting um, uh, support uh, that companies are, are doing to immigrant communities. Jim Irving was telling us about, you know, actually constructing some homes uh, uh, up uh, in northern uh, New Brunswick. Um, but. Uh, what portion would you say your workforce is made up of immigrants uh, at the moment in this region? This would be a guess, but uh, you know, I, I would say in the twenty-five percent range type of thing. Um, and you know, and and uh, you know, and it's completely through our operations, right? I mean, you know, it's whether it's our you know our offices here in St. John or, or you know our fish firms and some of the, the islands. Like we're getting more and more. You know, you know, part of it is is that the population in these rural communities is aging, and um, but I have to say I'm thankful that you know we've seen a a, a very strong uh, community support for these these immigrants going in and becoming part of the community, and they are totally part of the communities and the you know the schools, the churches, the they're they're all part of what uh, makes the community a great community. Yeah, we've heard several stories about churches that were on the verge of closing in the area in Charlotte County that are have been renewed with the uh, with the newcomer population. So, lots of benefits all the way around, but absolutely have to solve that housing challenge for sure. Uh, I wanted to come back to this issue of 
land based versus ocean based fishing, if you don't mind. Um, sure. Some people do suggest it would be better for fish farming if it was done on the land. Um, I understand that the Bay of Fundy in particular is a good place for it because it acts almost like a, uh, you know, the, the water sort of flushes out in and out every time the tide comes in and out. But what, what, what are the advantages and disadvantages of ocean-based farming compared to the land-based? You talked earlier about it's hard to make, make a buck on the land-based, but what, what are the other issues? I mean, you know, if you look at land-based, are very expensive to build, you know, lots of concrete, lots of newer, you know, you're, you're talking to build a, a, a land-based operation that would replace a normal fish farm today, you're probably talking about $500 million. And uh, that's that's structural cost to build that. Use large amounts of water, um, either uh, even under recirculation systems, you know, then there's a huge carbon footprint of pumping that water, cleansing that water, all that type of thing. Certainly from, uh, you know, um, you're in a protected environment when you're in a tank, um, which always bodes well. Um, I believe, you know, the key is for when you're farming the ocean, you know, if we're just not out there doing the Wild West, we uh, we have to monitor, you know, all our fish are fed by video cameras. So we know when, you know, where the, the how the fish are being fed. We regularly test, you know, the bottom underneath our cages. We, you know, we, there's a certain environmental guideline we have to follow. And, uh, um, like someday, I believe the land-based will be successful at some level, at some way. I'm, I'm not naive to say it will never work, but um, today, it's not. It doesn't exist that anyone in a major scale is making profit in in uh, land-based. You know, the largest land-based operation built in the world was built outside Miami, a company called Atlantic Sapphire, which has been a complete disaster. And I think they've got over a billion dollars now that's been wasted trying to uh, farm fish. It's actually a public company and you know, listeners can look it up. But but it, it's, it's, you know, so the technology, number one, is not there, it's there. But number two is, is I don't see that technology replacing the farming in the sea. You know, we've been, again, we've been there, you know, our company, is is pushing 30 years in existence and you know the industry globally is 60 to 70 years in existence and you know um, we believe there's a safe and a healthy way to produce fish and, and I think that's that's being done and uh, you know a lot of work's been going on to take you know fish further out the sea to farm on you know offshore sites which is another to me developmental phase for the industry and um, but you know like there's there's things that sometimes I find we live in a world that science doesn't mean a lot in our industry is all science based everything we do is is around science and you know we've got science on our side but we don't have rhetoric on our side or we don't have and the problem we know with social media today is is anyone becomes a person that can get on a podium and speak and they don't have to necessarily have to speak the truth and so you know i think a big challenge from our industry is to make sure we, they realize is farming the sea is a, is a good thing land-based once it starts making money and is successful is a good thing and um, i think both can can work to the 
the betterment and providing healthy f uh, fish to the, the world. I mean, today there was a report that was issued of all proteins produced, you know, Atlantic salmon has the lowest antibiotics. In Atlantic Canada, we had, didn't use antibiotics last year. You know, that's, you know, you can't say that about the beef and the poultry and the pork. And those are all safe products because they're all administered by uh, CFIA under the, the right standards. But, you know, there's, there's the you know, we don't use hormones in our industry. And, and you, you get that rumor and out there that, you know, our industry grows healthy, strong fish. And, you know, the Bay of Fundy used to be full of fish one time, you know, herring, ground fish when I was, well, that's not there now. And uh, so is it not natural to, to, to grow fish in the, the ocean that uh, used to provide for us and to provide again for us? I just wanted to ask you a quick follow-up because, the, of course, the hottest trend now in dieting is protein. Everybody wants to, to bulk up on protein, and fish uh, protein is considered the best, the most healthy form of protein, as I understand it. So I guess part of the argument is, is, is we don't have enough wild fish, so we absolutely have to have well-managed fish farming if we're going to meet the world's demand for protein. Is that, is that a fair conclusion? That, that's a very fair, you know, and, uh, you know, there, it's such a healthy protein, you know, and, you know, it's got all the dietary omega threes and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very good for you. And, and, uh, to me is, 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 uh, there's a lot more good about farm salmon and the rhetoric that's being told out there. Can I ask you about the deep water um, opportunities? You, you mentioned them in passing there. Is that Do you think that's going to become a major uh, opportunity for aquaculture? Or are, or are there technological hurdles right now or financial hurdles that, that are restricting our ability to take farm, salmon farming out into, the, into deeper water? You know, we've gone to very exposed sites and places like even New Brunswick, but in Orkney Island in Scotland, and and um, but you know some of the technology that's being developed, I mean, it's still being developed, and it's still yes, there's a cost to it. We got to make sure it all financial works. But there is some serious companies around the wor world doing some major investments to get that technology right. And I do believe long term we'll see more ocean farming, and um, because again, there's not you know there's limited production. I mean, everyone says why is the price of salmon gone up last few years? Well, it's gone up last few years because there's limited places to grow salmon around the world today, and uh, so uh, to, to feed the world, we're either going to have to go offshore or raise more fish and in uh, on land that's the only choices we have uh, glenn obviously the fish farming industry is a, an evolving one i mean obviously over the 30 years of your existence how you how you began and what you're doing today is probably completely different can you tell us a little bit about some of the innovations that are impact impacting your sector and and what your company is doing in the area of research and development to improve both your production efficiencies and environmental practices. You know, we, we've done, if you, you, know, you start, we've done a lot, we have a big geneticist program, genetics program where we're working for, to have the, the right fish for, for our environment to, uh, you know, grow the, grow as fast as we can and, and, uh, and uh, be resistant to things like parasites. 
But, you know, our, our, our hatcheries today are all recirculation. So, we, you know, we use very little new uh, fresh water. It's all, tr it's all uh, filtered coming in. And, uh, you know, our seawater sites, we're, we're, you know, we've uh, come to the technology where the nets, uh, you know, we, we clean them with robot robots. Uh, we are actually now trialing robotic, and we can actually put a robot in the net to, to fix a broken uh, 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 net, a uh, link in the net that actually can then sew it up. You know, we've uh, we've certainly, uh, uh, the cages today are all fed by uh, video, and the person sits in a nice warm office where they can watch the fish being fed properly, and sometimes that could be, fish being uh, fed in Grand Manan and the people actually sitting in an office in Black Harbor just to see the distance over the net. And, you know, our, our cages today are, are built um, at a very uh, strong wave uh, tank tested type of structure with our mooring system. So a lot of that, you know, we've survived many of a hurricane the last few years. And uh, so a lot of technology in, in, the, in the processing, you know, like our, for treating sea lice, which is one of the natural occurring things we have, you know, we've had we have uh, equipment on large boats that uh, either mechanically remove those lice or the, through water temperatures. We're obviously working on growing lumpfish. We're one of the first large companies in the world to actually do lumpfish as much as we're doing. Where the lump we put upwards of I think four percent of the cage becomes lumpfish, and these lumpfish go and they actually eat the lice off the salmon, which is a very natural way of looking after. And we're just uh, opening a new facility in East Fort Maine to do that. Uh, we have others as well. And you know our processing equipment. Uh, we just launched a new processing plant in St. George, where we got a close to a sixty million dollar investment with, uh, you know, where the, the fish come in and our our pitchers are taken to the fish before they're even filled it to make sure which ones should be filled at the right yields and you know fill machines and robot packing and all that type of technology that's driven through the through the fish uh, processing the fish so you know and uh, so we, we we embrace technology the whole way through our through ours and you know our, our you know our feed plants we have trial um, uh, um, um, laboratories, I guess, we're actually with, where there's fish swimming tanks, and we're feeding them different diets to make sure we get the diets right. And uh, so, you know, technology, we've got lots of PhD peers working for us and a lot of scientists and uh, geneticists, and it's a very science-based industry. Uh, just one other point that I wanted to make. I, I noticed in um, all Nova Scotia today, they were reporting on on your requirement to report uh, on sea lights. So this is uh, something that's fairly new as I understand it. So it's a, it's part of the uh, requir a requirement in Newfoundland, I think. I don't know if it's everywhere, but, um, you know, uh, you also mentioned that everything you do is MSC certified. I, can you just talk about what that means? Because I don't think people maybe understand the requirements that you're trying to, uh, you know, uh, stay uh, in, in, in line with. So, you know, we, we basically means we have a third party audit of all we do, whether it's in 
In the fishing side, it's MSC. In the in the farming side, it's BAP, or MSC and BAP. And you know where we basically they look through our records. There's a scenario that we have to go through. Wild fishery has to be very sustainable. They look at stock reports on the aquaculture. They'll look at your farm reports. Look at your mortality, your your sea lice issues. Your to basically give you your certification. So. Um, having a third party certifi- certified gives that extra step that we're doing things right. And it's obviously important for retailers, for customers to know that they're buying from a someone that has a third party audit and what they do. Right. Uh, what about the issue of traceability? Are, are you involved with, uh, of you know, certifying kind of where the product is coming from in any way? Oh, absolutely. On the farming side, we can trace we have traceability through our program. It's actually a genetics traceability program. We can actually trace it right back to the hatchery. They come from in freshwater, where they were farmed and what's, you know, when they were harvested, where they were hmm. processed the whole way through. On the vessel, we can do that from vessel forward. And uh, we have a strong traceability program, which yeah. is very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. It's becoming more important, isn't it? It, it, it is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess the other question that, that kind of follows this is, uh, you know, what are the biggest challenges facing the aquaculture industry today? I mean, you know, you're, you're a big player. Um, you, you see it all. You're integrated. So you've got more to worry about than most. <laughs> yeah. what, are the, what are the biggest challenges that you're, you're seeing in the industry? I think from a global perspective is just to make sure we get the right story out from our PR. Like, again, there's a false narrative that gets really delivered by some of the environmental groups and some of the environmental terrorists out there that basically they don't tell the truth and they don't need to tell the truth because they still get the platform and we believe we have science that that proves our platform we just got to keep getting that message out because that's very important you know i think um, for us is in Atlantic canada is is people we got to make sure we train and get more people you know immigration and the housing is important in Atlantic canada I think from a global perspective, making sure our markets are, are, you know, like, you know, it's, it's a strange world we live in the last two years, you know, Ukraine, Russia changed the global seafood markets, you know, you had the banning of Russian seafood around the world, except in places like Japan, then you had all the crab, for instance, our Newfoundland friends with the, with the snow crab got very up, very off offside with that because basically then you had uh, Russia sending all the snow crab and their other crab to Japan where Newfoundland crab used to go and really affected the price of crab. So some of those global things really affect the global markets and, uh, and I, you know, that, that's not to be underestimated. Things like exchange rates and uh, it's um, when you're on a global footprint there's you know you have to worry about a lot of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a, the intersection of politics or global events like that in the fishing sector. It's a, it, it adds a dynamic to being a global firm. Again, one based, uh, based in Blacks Harbor. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the aquaculture industry in Atlantic Canada, if you don't mind. We've seen a decline in the GDP contribution from aquaculture in Newfoundland and Labrador. PEI is seeing some growth. Nova Scotia is about moderating, and New Brunswick on the on the aquaculture side, maybe not on the processing side, but on the, on the just the aquaculture side, the GDP contribution hasn't been going up, growing up much either. 
Uh, and in BC, it's about it's flatlined for the last 10 years in terms of the GDP contribution. So what are the further, are there further opportunities? You would think with all that water, we have the longest coastline in the world. Are there opportunities to develop aquaculture, more aquaculture in Atlantic Canada? And if so, where and what, what's holding us back? I mean, I think it's the regulatory frameworks that are holding us back. And, you know, each one of those provinces would have different, thank goodness, in Atlantic Canada, we're administered by the, the provinces and, and uh, BC is by the federal government. But um, it's the regulatory framework, the time to actually get a site approved. You know, we've had some sites in the application process in, in Nova Scotia, which we'd like to develop and, and, and grow. The other thing that's going to help us grow is, is you know, we're, we're in the process of building these big uh, units that will grow large smolts. You know, in Bayside, New Brunswick, we announced an $80 million facility that we plan on starting very soon. And that will actually raise the fish larger on land. So normally we're stocking maybe 125-gram salmon in the seawater and that'll stock up close to 400 grams in the seawater so it'll actually cut the time frame those fish are in seawater which allows us to turn our sites faster and we're hoping for a 25 to 30 percent increase in in production longer term because of that um you know it's it's um we need the right regulatory framework, whether it's salmon farming development or other species development in Canada. I still believe Canada has huge opportunities for aquaculture development to feed the world, to feed Canada and feed the world. But we got to get the right regulatory frameworks in place to do that. I mean, I think science is on our side to do that, but we really need to get the message out because uh, science sometimes doesn't rule the day. Sometimes it's rhetoric. So what what is the yeah so is it is it like a political barrier or the environmentalists sort of winning the argument here I mean we have an ocean supercluster uh, everybody yes. wants to develop the oceans for economic purposes we have everybody's talking now about offshore energy offshore wind I mean everybody wants to leverage this advantage we have being next to water uh, but here you have the ability to feed the world with the technology and the capabilities we have here in Atlantic Canada so what what is that big barrier? Is it is it just the fact that there's kind of an apathy around this, or what? What's the problem? Yeah, I think we've built. I think government has tried to make sure they built all the safeguards they could into a, a new site approval, which I, I understand why because they want to make sure they do things right. But I think it takes so long for a site approval in Atlantic Canada. It takes years, years. And, um, you know, that's not what it takes around the other places in the world. And, and uh, you know, every year Norway auctions off new site capacity. And, you know, people bid on that new site capacity. And, and so there's growth every year. But that's not the, what we see here in Atlantic Canada. You know, because there's such, you know, you got your provincial, you got your local, your provincial, and then you got your federal, and there's about three different federal departments or four different federal departments to get involved in that approval process. I will tell you it's a very thorough process when a site's finally approved, but it, it takes years and years and years. So our industry slowed back and held back. And and that's not on similar for a mussel farmer, an oyster farmer, or whatever. It takes way too long for regulatory approval. And... and um, I think 
the political will is there to grow the industry, but you know it, it gets very slowed down in the bureaucracy of regulatory frameworks. But I mean, I I, I think there's huge potential for a number of different species in Atlantic Canada, and certainly in Canada. No, I think Don, you'd agree with me that if we're trying to develop an ocean supercluster, shouldn't aquaculture be <laughs> part of an ocean supercluster? Hundred percent. Anyway, um, I just just a couple of questions left, Glenn. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we wanted to ask you a little bit about your work on conservation. Your core purpose is to cultivate the ocean with care, nourish the world, provide for our families, and build stronger communities. You have several conservation projects running around the globe right now, and our research, we found one like a mangrove habitat planting in Honduras for your shrimp farm, sea turtle rearing and release in Nicaragua, uh, supplying retired uh, vessels to artificial reef programs in the United States. And then w one close to home here, the Fundy Salmon Recovery Project in New Brunswick that is now seeing record returns of wild Atlantic salmon uh, in Fundy National Park. Can you tell us about Cook's role operating the world's first wild salmon marine conservation farm on Grand Manan Island. Yeah, that's that's a very exciting project. You know, we, we work with, I'll throw his name in, Corey Clark with the Parks Canada and, uh, and uh, you know, taking fish, you know, uh, to the seawater where we actually rear them into basically broodstock to be released into the river where they'll spawn naturally. And then those fish will go out into the, river and then into the ocean when they smoltify and then, then return. And when they topple those returns, those are the type of returns we're getting. Huge potential for restoration of rivers in Atlantic Canada. Um, you know, I um, I'm, we tried to do this on the Miramichi and, and uh, in conjunction with uh, J.D. Irving and, and we got kind of shut down different places and uh, from a federal government perspective in doing so, but huge potential for restoring and, and Atlantic salmon, you know, I'm a, I'm a avid uh, angler and uh, I enjoy the, the rivers and, you know, getting the river, getting the fish back in the rivers is so important. And uh, I think this is a, a very natural way to do it. You know, genetically, those fish come from the river, they're raised in sea, the sea they would have went out to and to be brought back as broodstock and spawning on themselves in the river is, is, uh, you can't get much more natural than that, and we're so excited to be part of that project. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great project. Uh, just a final question, Glenn. Looking ahead, thinking about your company, do you expect to continue to expand your business through further acquisitions, and and how big can Cook eventually be, based on the, the number of acquisitions you've had in over the last five or six years? Well, we've. We've been fortunate to grow the comp double the company every two or three years on our on a track record, and um, I think our growth is only limited by how many good people we can get aboard during that time. Like again, I, it goes back to the people we have. Cook is about people, and um, our capacity to grow is only limited by the capacity of our people that uh, either step up or or come aboard and and. Uh, you know, we want to continue to grow it. As a family, we believe in investing and growing. You know, we get excited when we create jobs in rural areas around the world. We get excited when we create jobs in the head office in, in St. John, New Brunswick. And, and uh, so we can keep doing those. And, and a lot of that's got to be through acquisition because a lot of that um, 
a lot of that resource, whether it's farmed or wild, is in somebody else's hands. And and we believe a lot of times we're the perfect owner and fit for those because those are, in, again, rural communities. And we understand rural communities. And a lot of the sellers understand that as well. Uh, that, that this, you know, the sky's the limit. We're, we're only number five in, in farm salmon. And so there's <laughs> four more notches to go there. And then certainly in the wild side, there's, there's a lot, lot of growth. Well, just a supplementary on that. You mentioned your family, and I've been meaning to bring this up with you. You started the company with other family members, obviously. What about the next generation of uh, cooks? Are they are they involved in your business? Uh, I've got a couple nephews involved in my in the business today, and and uh, growing through. I have a daughter and son who are, at, are in university, and uh, you know the hope is is they'll they'll pick up the mantle, whether they do or not. That'll be their choice, but. Um, we certainly want to keep it a family involved in the business. And, I, you know, Cook may be a family business, but we are professionally managed. I mean, you know, like, you know, our, we have a lot of outside professionals in our organization that run this business. And uh, I may be at the top, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people holding me here. <laughs> Glenn, we want to thank you for joining us on the Insights Podcast and providing such an excellent overview cook agriculture and its exceptional success story we look forward to following the continued growth of the company thank you very much thank you thank you sir thank you you've been listening to the insights podcast from the acadia broadcasting corporation follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform like apple or spotify if you've enjoyed the show why not recommend it to a friend Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.